Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Before we get started with this show, I'm very pleased to announce a new podcast called The Wayback Week. Created and hosted by yours truly, with my great mate Mick Luby, it's a lighter look at the weird and wonderful headlines from weeks gone by. You can hear the trailer at the end of this episode of Forgotten Australia. The Wayback Week starts on the 1st of June, so be sure to subscribe at iTunes and other podcast platforms so you get every episode. Okay, on with the strange story of Arundel Nixon, King of the Cads. It's 11pm on the night of the 3rd of April, 1949, and Arundel Nixon, the man Australia has loved and hated as radio personality, the King of the Cads, is in pretty bad shape. Just an hour ago, he suddenly collapsed and was rushed to Brisbane Hospital. Now, Paloma, his attractive young wife, hovers by his bedside. You have to get better, she tells him. You're booked to appear in Toowoomba in Peter and the Wolf. A tear slides down his cheek. Arundel Nixon has lived to perform, but now he knows he won't live to perform again. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. These days, broadcasting bad boys and bad girls are a staple of commercial radio. Cheeky, witty, irreverent, rude and sometimes crass, they're found in morning and drive slots across the FM dial. Sometimes they even get in hot water by going too far to amuse or shock their listeners. But back in the early days of the wireless, it was a very different story. 
In the mid-1930s, Australians tuned in to their ABC or commercial stations to hear news, classical music, swing bands, serial dramas and maybe even a little light comedy, all of it delivered in the best possible taste. Then, along came the very talented Arundel Nixon, the self-appointed king of the cads. May I come too? I think not. Oh, I could easily be a lady correspondent. Uh, you better become a lady first, sweet. <laughs> you say the most charming things, dear. For about a decade, he brought a very risque persona to fans across Australia, earning himself numerous sackings as he battled censors, radio bosses, a trio of wives, and a considerable army of his own personal demons. Australia's original shock jock actually had rather dignified British beginnings. Arundel James Nixon was born with a silver spoon in his mouth in Colchester, Essex, on the 13th of February, 1907. He was named for his father, James, a lieutenant colonel in the King's Own Regiment, and for his grandfather, Arundel, who had been a major general in the Royal Artillery. Meanwhile, his mother was the Honourable Joan Burdett Money Coots, daughter of the fifth Lord of Latimer. The army and the aristocracy. That seemed to be what the future held for the boy who called himself Nicky. Nicky was educated at Eton College and then enrolled at Sandhurst Military College with the idea being that he would take a commission in the Royal 10th Hussars. But... When he was 17, Nicky rebelled against this regimented life and instead decided he wanted to be an actor. And he found himself the mentor of mentors when he understudied Noel Coward. Even so, Nicky's acting career didn't take off in London. What he did learn around this time from a fortune teller was that he would die at age 42. And this was a prophecy that he'd often joke about in years to come. In 1926, Nicky sailed for Australia in the company of his father. Given he'd rejected military life, it seems likely that his parents hoped Australia might knock some sense into their son, with the now 19-year-old taking a job as a jackaroo in Cooma in the New South Wales high country. When his father returned to England the following year, Nicky stayed in Australia, quitting country life in Cooma and moving to metropolitan Melbourne. Nicky was debonair and a dapper dresser, and with his slicked-back dark hair and thin moustache, he looked a little like Hollywood movie star William Powell. In Anglophile Australia, he had something else going for him as well, he was a well-bred and well-spoken Englishman. In 1928, aged 21, Nicky married a brunette actress named Edna Silly. They soon moved to Sydney, where Nicky directed a play called Spring Cleaning, casting his beautiful young wife as his co-star. Nicky also got a respectable day job as a schoolmaster. That was good because they soon had a baby on the way and economic times were tough and getting tougher with the Depression putting more and more men out of work. In 1931, Nicky joined a theatrical company. 
He took supporting roles in two comedies which were headlined by Louise Lovely, the Australian silent screen actress who had, in the teens and 20s, become our first Hollywood star. The shows toured Sydney, Melbourne and Adelaide, giving Nicky a taste of fame, with critics enjoying his silly ass stage persona. In 1932, Nicky's talent, rising profile and, well, Britishness saw him appointed director of productions and dramatic art at the Sydney Conservatorium. It was a plum job. Instead of being on the breadline like so many actors who'd seen theatre work dry up under the impact of the talkies and the depression, Nicky didn't just have a steady income, he had the resources to stage a program of classic period plays and cast himself in leading roles. Tellingly, he started out with David Garrick, a biographical play about the famous 18th century English actor, playwright and producer. David Garrick was credited with making theatre more appealing to the masses with his naturalistic style of acting and by reviving Shakespeare. It's a pretty good bet that Nicky saw his own destiny charted in David Garrick's story. As his leading lady, he chose a young beauty named Patricia Minchin. Patricia had the previous year starred in two of Australia's first talkies and she was known nationally as a model for her white wings and bushels advertisements. So did Nikki try to woo the beautiful and single Patricia? We don't know, but given his reputation, it seems likely he gave it a red-hot go. David Garrick was well-received, as were the plays Nikki produced and starred in for the Pickwick Theatre Group but his tenure with the Conservatorium came to an end in late 1932 when Nicky took off to England to tour in a series of plays. Returning to Sydney a year later, he had big David Garrick-like plans to remake repertory theatre for the Australian masses. Nicky talked up his ambition to have five or six companies working simultaneously in the capital cities with each presenting a new play every week and then swapping cities every few months. He told the newspapers, if the scheme receives practical support, it should mean a great deal to the Australian theatre. It was a good plan and he reckoned he had investors, but nothing came of it. Instead, Nicky increased his profile and popularity when he took to the Sydney stage in early 1934 in a thriller called Ten Minute Alibi, which had recently had its original smash hit run in London. He impressed critics and audiences as the piece's suave, self-confident, white-slaving villain, who initially woos the heroine, played by Thelma Scott, another Australian beauty from the early talkies. The company followed this thriller with a comedy called The Wind and the Rain. This time Nicky shared supporting honours with Jocelyn Howarth, who had the previous year caused many a heart to flutter with her hit movie The Squatter's Daughter. The company toured Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and New Zealand. Nicky kept himself amused with alcohol and adultery, not caring that back in Sydney his wife had just had their second child. When he appeared as a guest speaker at an August 1934 luncheon held for business girls at David Jones Department Store in Sydney, 
Nicky seemed to be protesting a little too much when he claimed stories of actors leading decadent lives were rather exaggerated. He told the young women, It is only because their matrimonial troubles, their love affairs, in fact, anything they do outside the theatre in any way peculiar is always broadcast, either by hearsay or by the newspapers. What Nicky was saying was the problem wasn't decadence so much as people's willingness to flap their lips about it. By September 1935, Nicky was back in Melbourne, co-starring in a production called So This Is Hollywood with another young Hellraiser named Peter Finch. Six months later, on the 13th of February 1936, his 29th birthday, Nicky's wicked ways caught up with him. Finally sick of his philandering, Edna divorced him on the grounds of his repeated adultery. It didn't slow Nicky down, and it was now that he found his true calling as a radio comedian. Initially, he paired with established broadcast funny man Dick Bentley for a show called Partners in Production that was broadcast three times a week on 3AW. The program had them doing impersonations of Noel Coward and various Hollywood stars and putting all of these characters into absurd, imaginary, satirical movies. Yet Nicky did have a bit of a setback around this time when he skidded off the road at 6.30 one winter morning in South Yarra, hit a tree and fractured his skull. Was he drunk? We don't know. But Nicky did make a habit of getting hammered all night and coming home in the early hours, so there is a reasonable chance he was smashed when he smashed. In any case, he bounced back and in August 1936, he married Bethesda Murray, the 19-year-old daughter of a wealthy Melbourne family. Nicky's career was now going from strength to strength, with powerful performances in radio serial dramas such as For the Term of His Natural Life and Victoria of England. But he really hit his stride in July 1938 when he created the radio role that would make him famous and infamous. Jack, the King of the Cads, was broadcast at lunchtime weekdays on Melbourne's 3AW. The Cad Shtick was a thinly veiled, toned-down version of Nicky's own quick-witted, devil-may-care personality. To the delight of his scandalised and almost exclusively female audience, this Cad named Jack praised luxuriousness, the wise habit of wanting everything, shunned domesticity, defined as that funny habit of having a family, and embraced revengefulness, the gorgeous art of getting even. In a regular sketch called Etchings from Life, he offered inadvisable advice on all sorts of problems, and in Failings of the Flesh, he provided a chronicle of his caddishness. One of his favourite lines was, Well, girls, if you can't be good, be careful. It's G-rated now, but back then, this was saucy stuff. But the show offered more than just titillation. He was a real talent who could convince as half a dozen distinct characters, switching between them in a split second. At first, no one knew the real identity of this risque character. Then, the secret was out. 
A month after the show debuted, Melbourne paper The Record carried an ad that read, Jack, the king of the cads is Arundel Nixon. He's mad, loony, crazy, nuts. Have lunch with Jack at 12.30pm, 3AW. It was a clever publicity move, and by October 1938, Nikki, also starring in 3AW adventure serial Ace of the Air, was voted Victoria's most popular air actor. He was also by then known nationally, with one of his one-man radio dramas carried on 53 stations across Australia. Nicky was a cad on air, but off air he was, to use his own description, a bastard to his wife Beth. Whatever honeymoon period they might have enjoyed was over by the time he was thrilling housewives as the king of the cads. Nicky was still going out all night and coming home drunk. Incensed, Beth followed him and found him with a young woman, Paloma McCreesh, an 18-year-old from another well-to-do Melbourne family. Nikki and Beth fought, and he hit her. He really was a bastard, but a bastard who had a way with words. Nikki promised to change, and Beth believed him. For a little while, he seemed to clean up his act. Then, it was back to drinking and seeing Paloma. Beth left him and went to Sydney. Bereft, Nikki sent her a lot of letters and telegrams, claiming to have changed his ways again. And Beth came back to him, only for him to start stepping out with Paloma again. So Beth left him again. Nikki wooed her back with more promises, and then he abused her trust yet again. On air, Nikki was more popular than ever with his risque radio show, and he also took lead roles in numerous serials, including Broken Idol, which told the life of Lawrence of Arabia. In the spring of 1939, Nicky was poached to Sydney to do his King of the Cads five days a week on 2GB. Paloma followed him to Sydney, and they shacked up together. One of Nicky's funniest new sketches had him impersonating Noel Coward if Noel had given up his wealth and taken up residence in a Sydney boarding house. Sydney audiences embraced him as enthusiastically as Melbourne listeners had. The enticingly named newspaper, The Cumberland Argus and Fruit Growers Advocate, reported... When Arundel Nixon first began his session at 2GB, many inquiries were received from listeners asking which was the dramatic group appearing in Masks and Murmurs and Noel Coward sketches every midday. They were amazed to learn the whole job was carried out by one man alone, Arundel Nixon, who is famous for his versatility and stagecraft. Back in Melbourne, Beth had found out that Nikki was shacked up with Paloma and on their third wedding anniversary, she served him with divorce papers. Nikki professed his shame and started playing the blame game in a torrent of groveling, threatening and pathetic letters demanding that Beth withdraw the divorce petition. Nikki claimed he was the aggrieved party, caught in a honey trap frame-up that had seen Paloma paid for by Beth's father. It was nonsense, of course, 
but he wrote that Paloma was ready to spill these beans and the scandal could land them all in jail. Nicky even intimated he might return to Melbourne and do damage to Beth's father. He also reckoned he was having Beth watched and had evidence of her own drunkenness and neglect of household duties. Another Nicky theme was that he was a victim of his own fame. He wrote to Beth, Darling, can't you forgive me again? I am so utterly miserable. I have been an awful twerp, conceited, arrogant, wrong values, all caused by my success. King of the Cads, he said, was the worst thing I ever did. For us, I mean. Whatever happens, the divorce cannot go through. All my love, darling Pooh, yours, Nikki. Another letter followed. Beth, darling, I love you, and I shall never really love anyone else. I have been spoilt by success and flattery, which have turned me from a decent sort of bloke into a bastard. Nikki's pathetic pleas didn't actually fall on deaf ears, and Beth agreed to give him one more chance. Nikki, of course, was still in Sydney, finding the King of the Cads too much fun to give up, and living in sin again with Paloma, who was also too much fun to give up. When Beth heard about this a few weeks later, she wrote to tell him that their marriage was over. Done, finished, kaput. Nicky picked up his pen repeatedly. I am sincere. I am so sorry. Do believe me. I am so desperate. Your own Nicky. Another letter. Beth, darling, for God's sake, write to me. I can't understand this awful silence. I am nearly desperate. Please, please, please write to me. I am so ashamed. When Beth did write back, she let him have it. I don't know who or what you think you are, but to expect me to resume life with you again as soon as you say is a piece of sheer impudence. You know what a mess of things you made here in Melbourne. You left debts all over the place and you made plain that you had no principles in your morals or in money matters. I suppose you have already started to make your name smell in Sydney. I cannot trust you, I don't believe you, and I think you will always be bad. I am sorry that things could not have been different, but it is all your fault. While Europe was plunging into war, this war of words between Beth and Nikki continued through 1939. But at the start of 1940, Nikki was fighting on another front. Nikki's on-air caddishness had made him a new and powerful enemy in Mrs. Eleanor Glencross, feminist, prohibitionist, chairwoman of the Housewives Association of New South Wales and one of Australia's most prominent conservative voices. Eleanor complained to the Postmaster General, who had authority over the airwaves, about the King of the Cads. In the first week of January 1940, without naming names, the Postmaster General announced, I will not tolerate smutty stories or risque jokes being put over the air. Commercial stations are going to stop broadcasting questionable jokes. Nicky told the press that this was clearly taking aim at him. The Postmaster General replied, Apparently Mr Nixon is accusing himself. Well, if the cap fits. 2GB suspended the King of the Cads 
and criticised Nikki for talking to the newspapers without their permission. After nearly two weeks, he was reinstated, promising to avoid risque jokes. On his return to the broadcasting booth, Nikki announced, Here I am, my usual bright and cheery self. But girls, I must now present to you a keep it clean session. Now I must be eccentric where I was clever and witty where I was vulgar. At least there was a commercial upside. The show was now sponsored by a dry cleaning company. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Meanwhile, Beth needed evidence of adultery that would force the divorce she wanted. Travelling to Sydney in April 1940, she and private detectives busted Nikki and Paloma in their Potts Point love nest. Despite all of his dirtiest laundry being aired in public, Truth Newspaper devoted thousands of words to the divorce proceedings, including lengthy excerpts from their letters, Nikki's career at 2GB didn't suffer. Actually, he expanded his show to include Sunday afternoons, a then unheard of move because few people were thought to listen to the wireless when they could be out fishing or at the beach. Nikki's love life also barely skipped a beat. In March 1941, the 34-year-old Cad married Paloma, who was now 21 years old. Sydney fans had a lot of chances to see Nicky in 1941 and 1942. He played himself in an Australian movie called That Certain Something and was billed in the credits as the King of the Cads. And he starred as a monstrous Russian waiter in Noel Coward's Point Verlaine at Sydney's Minerva Theatre. On its opening night in March 1942, one woman walked out saying loudly it was the most unpleasant play I've ever seen. Among his many radio dramas, Nicky played heroic Gus Gray, special correspondent in the mystery serial of the same name. As is still common, radio announcers then pocketed plenty of cash for endorsements. Given his personal proclivities, it was ironic that Nicky was the face of a tonic called R.U.R., which stood for Right You Are. Here's how one newspaper ad read. The very personification of health and alertness, Arundel Nixon is also a staunch R.U.R. user and says, It's got what it takes to pep up the old personality. In 1943, Nicky was so in demand that he was able to defect from 2GB to 2UE and then go back to 2GB. In April that year, his ex-wife Beth sued him for £158 in alimony and legal costs, which is about $11,000 today. Nicky was ordered to pay Beth £2 a week and just over £27 in legal fees. He didn't. And two months later, 
police arrested him when he came off air at 2GB. Given leave by the judge to sort out his financial affairs, Nicky made good on the payments. Meanwhile, a joke he made on air caused more outrage. The gag went like this. The butcher sat on the sausage machine and got behind in his orders. Again, Ed's G-rated today, but back then it led to a complaint from another leading conservative woman, Mrs. P.A. Cameron. A debate entitled, Is Wowserism a Menace to Australia?, was organised at Sydney University in May 1943, with Nicky arguing the affirmative against Mrs. Cameron. Here's some of what Nicky said. Wowsers are people who find dirt where there is none. They comprise only about 1% of the population, but they meddle in many things. Take broadcasting, for instance. Wowsers employ, and I hope pay, other people to take down everything on the radio, and then they examine all this evidence to discover a double meaning. If there isn't a double meaning, they invent one. Mrs Cameron's rebuttal included this. It was properly organised wowsers who kicked Satan out of heaven and sent him down here. For Nicky's role in puncturing pretension in this debate, Sydney University's satirical Oxymetrical Society listed him as one of 1944's honorees, alongside non-existent poet Ern Malley. By July 1945, Nicky was back in Melbourne and again doing his King of the Cads show, this time for 3XY. He was earning £15 a week and living in the Lilydale Hotel with Paloma and their two young children. Nicky still revelled in his bad boy reputation, running competitions to find his most abusive fan mail and calling himself the most conceited idiot in radio. Even so, he had to keep his show moderately clean. One bit in which he did both voices went like this. Did you hear me on the radio last night? No, Nicky. Were you on the radio last night? Sure. There weren't enough chairs, so I was on the radio. I'm sorry. It's not funny, but at least it's clean. This was a little less clean. Darling, I love you terribly. You sure do. A writer for The Advocate, Melbourne's Catholic newspaper, set out to determine whether the King of the Cads was actually obscene. He wrote, Nixon gets laughs by giving himself airs and by constantly preening his feathers at the expense of others. If it shows anything, it shows a leisurely air of superiority, which is, no doubt, very irritating to those who feel their inferiority in its presence. As for his obscenity, he repeats over and over again as a climax to some pointless foolery that it's clean. But sometimes when advertising ladies' garments, he will get a leer into his voice and roll the syllables sibilantly around his lips. His snigger is the most lustfully Rabelaisian I have ever heard. In short, Mr Nixon amuses himself first by leering and jeering and boasting. But there is never anything malicious in what he says. I have never heard anything really offensive. A kind of sophisticated larrikin of the radio, he is vulgar rather than obscene. He may make you laugh or he may make you blush. 
Maybe he'll make you do both. Nikki was more likely blushing than laughing when, in early July 1945, his luxuriousness saw his creditors take him to bankruptcy court, where it emerged he'd been unable to live on £1,500 a year. That's about $110,000 in today's money. But keep in mind that back then, £1,500 was enough to buy a house outright. Basically, Nicky blamed his poverty and debts on his high living. Drinking, gambling, going to hotels, entertaining people. He told the court, I admit I've been very careless. 3XY, whose relationship with Nicky had already soured, didn't love this kind of publicity, and a week after this story, he was sacked, mid-broadcast. No reason was given by 3XY, though it seemed likely in connection with outraging morals. Nicky announced legal action against the station, but that came to nothing. Done with Melbourne, Nicky moved back to Sydney and back to 2GB, only to again fall victim to their jitters over censorship. Sacked again, he announced plans to sue the station for £5,000. With nothing coming of that, he decided to move to Perth at the end of 1946, with Paloma and the children set to follow. In Perth, Nicky did his radio show on 6PR and opened a drama studio. He also played Captain Hook in pantomime Peter Pan at His Majesty's Theatre. His kiddie audience loved to hate him, and so did everyone else after he gave the sort of interview that today we'd simply call trolling. I'm thinking of abdicating my crown as king of the cads, he told the Sunday Times while leering reflectively into his whiskey glass. Since coming to Perth, I have decided that the average local girl, despite her charming chassis, simply hasn't enough intelligence to make cadding amusing. In a word, the beauties here are boring to a man like me. I admit the Perth girl has a beautiful body. It is a pity her mind does not conform to her contours. I have had better conversations with the armless young lady you have in your museum. A Perth girl silent is exquisite. A Perth girl speaking is a torment. That sort of trolling, as it's now known, was evidently old hat even then. While the Sunday Times got a lot of outraged letters, they were from fathers and old ladies. Perth girls were more amused than annoyed. One young woman from Mount Lawley wrote, No bites from me. Balling a girl out is an old psychological trick and Nixon does it too wolfishly well for a demure lass like me to be hoodwinked into his clutches by getting mad at him. When again interviewed by the Sunday Times, this time lounging around in a saffron-coloured robe, Nicky revelled in the hundreds of hate letters he reckoned he'd received. They've called me everything, he chuckled. What spirit, and I love them all. There's nothing I enjoy more than a wild woman. Any man can get his one and only to call him darling, but how many men can get dozens, hundreds, to call him a heel, a hick, and all sorts of horrid things? Why, I'll bet I'm the most hated man in Perth. In case anyone took it too seriously, he reminded, Just remember, Nicky Nixon may not wear his heart on his sleeve, 
but he does carry his tongue in his cheek. But the Postmaster General was again on his case, calling Nicky's radio show morally low and unfit and saying it'd be banned if he wasn't careful. Nicky refused to back down. He told the newspapers, I am not employed to please a minute section of the public. Again, this is a case of a small minority trying to overcome a vast majority. That my session is enjoyed is proved by fan mail and many phone calls. Nicky also performed in a play called White Cargo. Asked one night to step forward and say a few words, he dropped this clangor. I can only say what Mark Antony said as he stepped into Cleopatra's tent. Well, I didn't come here to make a speech. More outrage followed in the second week of February 1947. On a boiling hot day, Nicky was asked to leave a Perth bar because he wasn't wearing a collar and tie. To protest, the next day at 5pm, with the temperature at 97 degrees Fahrenheit, that's 36 degrees Celsius, he returned to the bar wearing a sheepskin jacket, fur-lined boots, heavy scarf, fur-lined gloves and a balaclava helmet. Technically, he was dressed correctly and he was served a drink when he asked for one. Nicky got 30 letters praising his prank activism. He told the press, I am not trying to precipitate dress reform in Perth, but the situation of everyone having to wear tie, collar and coat before being served with a drink in a lounge is farcical. In a warm climate such as this, hotel keepers are carrying the old-school tie traditions a bit too far. Nicky's private life was as tumultuous as ever. Though Paloma had left him four times in the past six years, she answered his call to come to Perth with the children, only to find he wasn't interested in them in the slightest and seemingly was unwilling to provide for them. Things came to a head when a child welfare officer found Paloma in a Perth hotel just after New Year's Day 1947. She was nude, drunk and in a pill-induced stupor in the presence of their children. Paloma wound up in hospital with charges of child neglect filed against her. A little over a month later, Nikki took off with a married woman, leading to Paloma's father filing charges against him for contributing to the neglect of the children. Both cases were heard simultaneously in Perth's Children's Court, with Nikki and Paloma answering charges of neglect. She alleged that he was abusive, saying that in Sydney he'd once jammed a broken glass into her leg, requiring three stitches and that he'd recently run off with a married woman, leaving her with just tuppence. She also claimed he was a sexual maniac who forced her to drink whiskey under the threat of physical violence. Nikki claimed Paloma was a drunk, unfit to be a mother, and that he'd found her in bed with another man, and that she was carrying on with another chap as well. To say Nikki's conduct was bizarre in court was an understatement. He made frequent outbursts, both to declare his love for Paloma and then to denigrate her bitterly, and the judge ordered him from court on several occasions. The strangest moment came on the first day of the hearing, when, during the lunch break, Nicky went to the radio station to do his King of the Cads show. 
During the program, he conducted a live phone interview with a subpoenaed witness and then read a poem that he'd written in praise of Paloma. When he returned to court that afternoon, her lawyer said what everyone had to be thinking. After his abuse of his wife here this morning, it sounds as if this man is mental. The case ran five days. In the end, Nikki was cleared of child neglect. Paloma was cautioned for child neglect and was denied custody of their children. She then petitioned for a divorce on the grounds of his adultery, while Nikki responded by suing his wife's lawyer for defamation and her father for damages for malicious prosecution. In deliberating that case, the judge said of Nikki and Paloma's life that it involved a great deal of bohemianism on the part of the parents, which must point to a certain amount of neglect of the children, and that Nikki put fleshly pleasures above the obligations of the household. While Nikki was given custody of the children, he promptly handed them to friends and hopped on a plane to Brisbane to start a new life, saying he'd send for the kids when he was well set up. In Brisbane, Nikki headlined a vaudeville comedy club and did a daily show on brand new radio station 4KQ, reminding listeners, it's not funny, but it's clean. At this time, a radio reviewer said Nikki conveys the impression of his being slightly annoyed with everybody and everything. He lasted three months. His 4KQ services terminated at the end of September 1947. I have been sacked from this station, but I don't know why, he said. I have been told to quit. Cheerio, kids, and thank you for your support. Bye-bye. Be good. It has been lovely working here, and I am sorry to leave, but it isn't my fault. For once, Nikki was right. Seven other staff were also let go at the station, whose own manager said it had been terribly mismanaged. As ever, Nikki's personal and financial life remained chaotic, and he quickly fell behind in his child support payments. Declared destitute, his little son and daughter were sent to live with Paloma's father in Melbourne. Though his star had faded, Nikki kept busy in Brisbane doing radio plays and stage work, including narrating Peter and the Wolf for concerts put on by the ABC Symphony Orchestra. In 1948, he also did a comic monologue and impressions at Lennon's Hotel for the Brisbane launch of that exciting new Australian car, the Holden. Incredibly, given how ugly and public their separation had been, by April that year, Paloma had custody of the children again and brought them to Brisbane to live with Nikki. She said they were happy, but Nikki's drinking still made him erratic. Acting as MC of a variety show at the end of 1948, he wandered onto stage and interrupted an act to prematurely announce the next performer. At 10pm on the 3rd of April 1949, a week before he was to narrate Peter and the Wolf in Toowoomba, Nikki suddenly collapsed and was rushed to Brisbane Hospital. An hour later, with Paloma by his side, the King of the Cads died of liver failure due to acute alcoholism. He was 42, just as the fortune teller had predicted.
Despite his immense fame just a decade earlier, Arundel Nixon's passing was noted only in passing by most Australian newspapers. Smith's Weekly was the notable exception. Its tribute read, Arundel Nixon has died and has left a peculiar blank in the queer pattern of Australian radio. Nicky was something more than a very good actor. He was a sharp-cut personality who came into the game at a time when he was most needed. As King of the Cads, he sounded a healthy note of cynical detachment among the sentimental humbug and commercial ballyhoo. He was the only man who ever dared to challenge the Wowsers and the Killjoys who resented his outspoken broadcasts. He should be remembered with affection by all who can appreciate the rare worth of a truly honest artist. But the last word was had by Paloma, who had cause to hate Nicky more than anyone. But a week after his death, before returning to Melbourne to live with their children, she told Truth Newspaper, I can't believe it. I really don't believe he is dead. I know Nick had his faults, but they were open to the world. A lot of other people have their faults too, but they keep them locked up in cupboards. Nick knew he had his faults and was quite open about them. I always love Nick and always will. His faults were petty ones. We lived a bohemian sort of life, I'll admit, but we lived for one another. I don't think I can live without him. I went to the funeral yesterday, but I can't believe it was Nick. Was it someone else in that box? I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could subscribe at iTunes and leave a review. For more information about this and other stories, head to ForgottenAustralia.com and Forgotten Oz Podcast at Facebook. This podcast was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra and Darug people. Now, here's a taste of The Wayback Week. From sexy smoking robots and polka dot pinup girls to flying saucer frenzies and expeditions to the hollow world. The Wayback Week is your podcast blast to the weird and wonderful past. I am Mick Luby. I am Michael Adams. Each episode will take you on a deep dive into news stories that had everyone talking in the Wayback Week. These are the people and events that made headlines everywhere. Even if they didn't necessarily make the history books. How it works is we'll go back. Way back. To what was going on in the very week you're listening to the show. So it might be 80 years ago. When newspapers were full of headlines about robots. Electro, the Westinghouse motor man. Or 65 years back. When the real James Bond was hunting the Yeti in the Himalayas. Or half a century ago. When man was walking on the moon. But a lot of other stuff was happening back here on Earth. We're going to bring you all that and more. Much, much more. So when can people take off on this podcasting blast to the past, Michael? I'm glad you asked, Mick. The Wayback Week's on air. By air, you mean all podcast platforms. I do. It's on air from the 1st of June. So make sure you tune in. And by tune in, you mean subscribe, right? That's what I mean. So make sure you subscribe to get every episode of The Wayback Week. So James Bond, he really went after the Yeti? He sure did. Man, that would have made the best movie. Furfinger. 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 All right, what about licensed 
to chill. The abominable snowman with the golden gun. I don't want you to die, Mr. Bond. I want you to clean my fur of knits. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.